Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming. I'm afraid English is one of the main languages that I'm restricted to, mathematics being the other, which is not particularly helpful. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to do this in English. Do feel free as I'm going through, if you're able to, um, ask for a question of clarification of language at any stage uh, in English. Uh, then I will uh, attempt to clarify or simplify uh, my language um, just to make sure that we're communicating as we go through. The way I'm going to structure this is to uh, give some uh, input from the, the front here and then uh, take a space for uh, you to have discussions amongst yourselves uh, and reflect on the input that I've just given. Uh, and then move on to another bit of input, another bit of discussion, and so on. And then at the end uh, of uh, that interplay of input and discussion, we'll also have time uh, for us to react uh, together, uh, to take questions and comments from the floor. Uh, so this is the list of sort of sections that we're going to work through. If we think about uh, the existential uh, aspect of the problem of evil... Um, a term particularly associated with the French philosophers of the 1960s like Jean-Paul Sartre and Camus sitting in French prison cafes smoking cigarettes and writing novels uh, about the meaninglessness of existence and how terrible it all is and so on. Um, it means uh, to do with our life the real things uh, that matter day to day uh, to us. We're going to look at the issue, uh, as I've given the title here, of, of are we happy pets or blessed humans? Look at the issue of evil in existential perspective, of the question, is the pain worth the gain or not? We'll look at evil and the argument from desire, uh, an argument that was particularly popularised by C.S. Lewis uh, back in the, the 50s and look at the, the Christ aspect of this, the Christocentric aspect of what a particularly Christian worldview uh, has to say uh, on the matter of responding to evil. And after each of those bits of input, um, you can discuss whatever is on your heart at that moment, but if you need a discussion question to start, start you off, I have the very general question there, um, how does this make you feel and why? So I think that covers uh, the bases. The pictures that uh, keep cropping up here uh, are from the uh, English artist William Blake, uh, his illustrations to the book of Job. Uh, so this is uh, very apposite, uh, given that the, the previous uh, lecture we had was talking about Job uh, at the end there. So are we happy pets of God or blessed humans. The American philosopher of religion, Alvin Plantinga, says that suffering and misfortune may constitute a problem for the theist, that is, for the person who believes in God. But he says the problem is not that his beliefs are logically or probabilistically incompatible. And I'll unpack that uh, in my lecture later today on the intellectual problem of evil. 
But he goes on, he says, the theist may find a religious problem in evil. In the presence of his own suffering or that of someone near to him, he may find it difficult to maintain what he takes to be the proper attitude towards God. He may be tempted to rebel against God or even to give up belief in God altogether. But this is a problem of a different dimension. It's not really a philosophical problem. Such a problem calls, therefore, not for philosophical enlightenment, but for pastoral care. In other words, it calls for a response of love, of compassion, uh, of understanding, of coming alongside someone whilst they cry into your shoulder and you make them uh, a good strong cup of coffee or whatever it may be. William Lane Craig notes that we tend naturally to assume that if God exists, then his purpose for human life is happiness in this world. And of course, when you start talking about happiness, our culture, Western culture in general, has moved away from the ancient classical understanding of of happiness as to do with a objective human flourishing and towards a subjective understanding of happiness as having certain nice feelings here and now in in the present moment. We assume that God's purpose for human life is happiness and we probably assume that that means that subjective modern sense of happiness In this world, we have our horizon limited, again, to the here and now. But Craig says God's role in this view of things is kind of to provide a comfortable environment for his human pets. That's the kind of relationship between God and us. Uh, That seems to be assumed by this view but in the Christian view says Craig this is false we are not God's pets and the goal of human life is the knowledge of God and and not just head knowledge but knowledge in relationship sense Um, you know in in the Bible the, the word know is used of very intimate relationship. Um, so Adam knew Eve and they have a child. Uh, that sort of interpersonal knowledge, deep knowledge of one another. So the goal of human life, according to Christianity, is the knowledge of God, which in the end, of course, will bring true and everlasting human fulfillment the ancient sense of of happiness and no doubt that will include a lot of subjective happiness as well but that is something that on the Christian view is promised in the long run and that is not guaranteed for everyone it is only guaranteed to those 
who want it, who want to know God, rather than wanting not to know God. So as the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, this is Rembrandt's painting of the Apostle Paul. He takes this sort of long-term perspective on suffering. He says, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, renewed in the image of Christ. For our light and momentary troubles. Now to put into perspective what St. Paul means when he talks about our light and momentary troubles, this is of course the St. Paul who on occasion finds people trying to stone him to death for proclaiming the gospel. Or find people locking him up in prison for long periods of time for proclaiming the gospel or for the sake of proclaiming the gospel to a new people group is prepared to go on a sea voyage and in ancient times going on a sea voyage is dangerous and he gets shipwrecked and barely survives our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not in what is seen, not on that present world horizon, but on what is unseen, the kingdom of heaven come in all its fullness and glory, the new heavens and the new earth. We fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what's unseen, since what is seen is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. (coughs) Blessedness is something that can coexist with sadness in this life. Blessedness is an objective state of affairs. Sadness is a subjective emotional reaction. And so, objective blessedness and subjective sadness can coexist in this life. And the fact that they can coexist helps us to become content, in the biblical sense, despite sorrows. Have a look at uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. You know, St. Paul somewhere talks about, I have learnt the secret of being content in all circumstances. Uh, that contentment, that knowledge of one's objective blessedness, giving a foundation to your, your life, you know, is something that does not depend upon the temporary changes of this world but of course ultimately that blessedness in Christ will bring happiness in in all of its meanings it will bring true flourishing in its wake and there have a look at uh, Revelation 21 
one, and my favourite, uh, more modern literary example of that theme uh, is C.S. Lewis's translation of Revelation 21 uh, into the end of the Narnia Chronicles, at the end of the last battle, um, where he talks about the, the children's adventures in this world had now come to an end, but now they embarked upon the true adventure, a whole new book that was never ending, and where each chapter, each chapter was more glorious than the chapter before. So how does this make you feel and why? I have a little bit of background music just to give me some timing so you have some, some minutes to discuss with the folks around you anything that's on your heart from that input. So if I ask you to draw those conversations to a close for the moment. And this is the section on evil in existential perspective. The atheist Paul Kurtz, an American humanist who was uh, very influential in the, uh, the humanist movement in America, uh, in an article for Free Inquiry, which is uh, the magazine uh, of that uh, community in America, as it were, once commented that secular humanists need to confront directly the root existential questions of life. So they need to help people withstand the blows of outrageous fortune, illness, grief, suffering, conflict, failure, and death. He wanted secular humanists to have something to say in the face of people's suffering, just as perhaps the indication there is he thought religious people had at least something to say that was comforting, but of course he thought ultimately hollow because false. But he recognized that secular humanists needed to think harder and try and do a better job of saying something comforting but true from their worldview perspective. Uh, which is a noble enough end in and of itself, one might think. But what resources does the worldview of a secular humanist, a worldview that is, generally speaking, a naturalistic, a materialistic worldview, what resources does such a worldview provide for saying anything comforting in the face of suffering and evil? Oxford atheist chemist Peter Atkins famously said this, We are children of chaos. And the deep structure of change is decay. At root, there is only corruption and the unstemmable tide of chaos. Gone is 
purpose, all that is left is direction. And you see the distinction between going somewhere with a purpose and just going. This, he says, is the bleakness we have to accept as we peer deeply and dispassionately and, in his view, scientifically into the heart of the universe. That is, the universe considered from a purely materialistic, naturalistic viewpoint. All there really is are the laws of thermodynamics and we are doomed. Atheist William Provine said there are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics. I was talking very much about that in my lecture yesterday, about responding to the problem of evil with the moral argument for God from the existence of objective value, including, of course, the existence of objective evil in the world. Provine says there is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. In his recent book, Atheism, What Everyone Needs to Know, Michael Roos says this, Don't kid yourself. If you become a non-believer, then you have left the security of your childhood. This is a constant atheistic theme of of growing up, of the need to come of age and leave behind the the myths and fairy tales of childhood for an adult grown-up view of the world, which is a way of saying uh, a view of the world that is leaving behind the security of your childhood. There is no ultimate meaning. And secular attempts to find a substitute simply aren't going to do it. It's gone forever. Now, Ruth does say that there may be no objective morality and no ultimate meaning, but... And here's the consolation. But nature has made us such that we can be kind and giving, enjoy life and find it worthwhile. That is, we can have a subjective feeling within ourselves that life is worthwhile. But does he mean that it is objectively worthwhile or subjectively that we merely have that feeling. But it's not true. (laughs) What he clearly means is, we have that feeling, but from his worldview perspective, that feeling is a lie that nature has foisted upon us. We can enjoy life and find it worthwhile, although he's adding under his breath, although it isn't. Alex Rosenberg's recent book, The Atheist's Guide to Reality, is a fascinating read. He, at the beginning of the book, lays out his worldview 
in a question and answer form, a sort of atheistic creed, if you like. He says this, is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. That is, there is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there a soul? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on as before, except us who have died. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Rosenberg goes on, he says, individual human life is meaningless, without purpose, without ultimate moral value. We need to face the fact that nihilism, the nihil, the nothing, nothingism, nothing matters. Nihilism is true. We need to face the fact that nihilism is true. And he says, creating purpose, back to Michael Ruiz, we can, we can have this subjective sense of meaning and purpose. Well, the existentialists, the thing to do is to just make a choice and follow it and have your own subjective private purpose in life. Creating purpose, but of course you can't create an objective purpose. You can only create your own private subjective purposes. Creating purpose says Rosenberg, in a world that can't have any, objectively speaking, is like trying to build a perpetual motion machine after you have discovered that nature has ruled them out. He says, if this seems hard to take, and here again, here is the consolation that he offers in the face of the evil and suffering of the world. Here's the consolation. If this seems hard to take, I think it is, he says, there's always Prozac. That is a, a drug, particularly famous in America, that's given to people to combat depression. There's always Prozac, anti-depression drugs. And if you think this is just a sort of offhand, funny comment from him... No, he means this. Later on in the book, towards the end, he says this. What should we scientific folk do when overcome by Weltschmerz? I've probably completely murdered the language there. Sorry, any Germans here? Uh, world weariness. He says, take two of whatever neuropharmacology prescribes. That is, take some drugs. Prescription drugs, but still. That's the consolation that he can offer in the face of suffering. Take some drugs. How does this make you feel and why? <sighs> so...
Um, Professor, in uh, our little conversation there, reminded me of the, the quote from C.S. Lewis, um, who said when addressing the question of, you know, will Christianity make me happy? And, and kind of trying to say to people that in, well, if you take that in the modern sense of subjective happiness, that's really the wrong question. Uh, Lewis said, look, I, I always knew that a bottle of port would make me happy. A bottle of port would make me happy. But the question is, which worldview is going to give me real flourishing, a real foundation for flourishing, uh, is going to satisfy those desires of the human heart. We'll come back to that, that theme later, because a naturalistic, materialistic worldview, in the face of those desires of the human heart for meaning, for purpose, for value, and so on, says that's all an illusion. That's just fairy tales of childhood. Um, but maybe that is not to take those desires seriously enough as, as data uh, to be explained. But we'll come back to that theme later. Is the, the pain of existence worth the gain? That might be one way of boiling down the, the question of, of suffering and evil. Is the pain worth it? In the end, if you said no to that question, if you ask yourself that question, or someone who's suffering asks you that question, is the pain worth it? Will it be worth it? If you were to say no, think what that means. It means saying that if humanity were threatened with extinction, and it was within our power to save humanity from extinction. We ought not do so. We're saying that it would have been better if humanity had never come to pass. Saying that the pain is not worth the gain is saying to oneself and to one's fellow human beings that life, my life, your life, is not worth living. It is, in other words, to embrace nihilism. Um, and you may feel or intuit that that is a deeply anti-human and, in a sense, anti-reality thing to do. Let me illustrate this point with a couple of clips from the Luke uh, Besson-directed sci-fi film The Fifth Element. Um, who here has, has seen the film The, the Fifth Element? Yeah, it's something of a, a sci-fi classic. For those, for those of you who don't know, I will briefly outline the plot, and I'm afraid I will give the end of the film away. Um, <laughs> but hopefully a way that inspires you to go and watch the whole thing. It's a, a fascinating watch. In The, the Fifth Element, a sci-fi film, um, humanity is threatened with uh, the destruction of Earth with our extinction by a primordial force of evil uh, that seems to travel through space in the form of a big black ball uh, mysterious and unknowable manipulating uh, certain characters in the film to bring about the end of humanity however over the, the eons humanity have been protected by an, an alien race who um, put on earth a machine capable of stopping the great evil 
uh, when uh, the keys to turning the machine on are brought together uh, in the right place. And these keys are the, the standard four elements of uh, earth and wind and fire and water and the, the, the crucial fifth element who turns out to be the uh, uh, genetically engineered form of uh, Mila Jovovich playing uh, the, the perfect being, the fifth element, uh, sent as a sort of female saviour figure uh, to save humanity. However, throughout the film, at various stages, she's, she's learning about human life as a sort of um, naive, uh, innocent abroad kind of figure. And she's going through the electronic dictionary on board their starship. And at a crucial point in the film, she comes across a particularly significant entry in the encyclopedia. Let me show you uh, this clip from The Fifth Element. So, The Fifth Element has just discovered man's recent history of inhumanity to man. And it, it kind of seems like in the film the, the aliens who have been protecting humanity down the ages and have sent the fifth element as their saviour on this occasion. Part of the uh, genetic engineering of the fifth element is that she's designed to only save humanity under certain circumstances. And it seems like the circumstances of discovering what humans have done with the life that the aliens have protected for them drains the fifth element of her will to save them. So we come to the end of the film. Our heroes, including uh, Bruce Willis, who plays a taxi driver who gets mixed up on this affair and, of course, ends up wearing a string vest. Bruce Willis gets the, the four key elements into the ancient pyramid in Egypt that houses the earth-saving machine and he He's putting the fifth element in there and they, they manage to get the machine to the point where it's, it's almost going to work and they need the fifth element to, to do the final deed. Come on, save us, save us. But she doesn't seem particularly interested in saving them. And so the audience, of course, we are on the edge of our seats as the, the great evil approaches Earth um, Earth is powerless to stop it. The president of Earth is bowing his head in despair or prayer. Who knows? Is humanity going to be saved from extinction or not? What's going to happen? Will the fifth element work? Why? Let's see what happens. At which point, of course, the audience uh, in the cinema groan with disappointment because, oh no, humanity has been saved from extinction. 
all of that pain and suffering that's just not worth it is going to continue. No, it actually seems that the filmmakers are banking their money on the fact that the audience will side with their intuition. That when Lilu discovers that love is still alive, she can experience love as well as man's inhumanity to man. That man's free will may be being massively misused for evil. But there is love. There are some things worth saving. Indeed, it would seem that our intuition is that those things are so worth saving that the pain is worth the gain. Leafed overall in the final analysis. Otherwise, why do we as the audience at the end of this film go out feeling like, oh, good, there was a happy ending? That it's a happy ending that humanity is saved. The intuition of our hearts, uh, what philosophers might call a properly basic belief, the intuition that the existence of humans is worthwhile overall, shows that it's irrational, I think, to discount God on the basis that if we don't have a complete understanding of why life is worthwhile, then we're justified in kind of leaping to the conclusion that it's not. You don't have to have a complete understanding through and through of why life is worthwhile to be rational in believing that it is worthwhile. You see the difference? Recognising the value of human life means making, if you like, the unselfish decision that we'd rather the universe contain the value that we embody, even if that means accepting suffering. And note, I say accepting suffering, not acquiescing in suffering, not going along with suffering but accepting that it's there. We'd rather that than get rid of ourselves. That would get rid of our suffering, but it would also get rid of the value that we embody as human beings. And indeed, this selfless attitude, as it were, might itself be one of the values that's permitted by our existence in this world of suffering that contributes towards justifying our existence. I was reading recently a, a book about spirituality uh, written by a, a non-Christian author. He's coming from a sort of semi-Buddhist position. But I think this is an interesting quotation from, from him that chimes with that last point I just made. Roger Gottlieb uh, asked this question says, is the ability to maintain a sense that life matters despite the world's pain the fundamental spiritual virtue? 
Fundamental in the sense that it makes all of the other spiritual virtues possible. And that without it, we may not be able to manifest those other spiritual virtues very well or for very long. In biblical terms, this is the spiritual virtue of hope. I'm still getting used to uh, my new laptop, which does things in a slightly different way than my old one does. So let's think a little bit. I promise we'd come back to this issue of human desire. These desires that earlier we thought the naturalistic worldview just sort of has to end up discounting as illusions. Let's see what happens if we take them a little bit more seriously. We can note the, the existence of various desires that we might call existentially relevant desires. Um, think about C.S. Lewis's description of, of joy, um, particularly in his uh, autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Think of our desire for objective value, purpose, meaning, justice, forgiveness, for heaven. There are various desires in this list, and reality either can or cannot satisfy those desires that we have. Lewis uh, counted what he called the irrepressible thirst for immortality among the contents of natural desires, desires that are innate to the human condition uh, rather than the kind of desires that are simply uh, stimulated by uh, advertising and so on. The agnostic philosopher Anthony O'Hare acknowledges the perfection we long for in some other world. Charles Taylor uh, notes our aspiration to separate ourselves from evil and chaos. The philosopher Roger Scruton notes those ancient and ineradicable yearnings for something else, for a homecoming to our true community. And he argues that beauty in particular points us beyond this world to a kingdom of ends in which our immortal longings are finally answered. The more of these existential desires we believed we had and we believed to be in vain, to be such that reality could not and never would satisfy them, the more absurd we would think our existence uh, to borrow a term from Albert Camus. Lewis thought that belief in naturalism inevitably generates what he called a disharmony 
between our hearts and nature. Francis Schaeffer famously explored the, the existential line of despair, as he called it. A line of despair generated by reducing what he called the mannishness of man. The, the things of man that won't fit within a materialistic understanding of man. Naturalism ends up reducing, explaining away the mannishness of man to the non-personal sources available to a naturalistic worldview. Philosopher Geoffrey Gordon concludes that if the universe does lack purpose, objectively speaking, then he says man is a creature imbued with passions remarkably inappropriate to the universe in which he is immersed. And faced with this consequent disharmony, Thomas Morris ponders, are our deepest yearnings and desires a good guide to the deepest truths about existence? Or could some of them be, by contrast, totally out of joint with reality? I think the natural response to that question assumes the priority of trust. Many philosophers in in recent years talking about the theory of knowledge have emphasized the priority of trust in our knowing things about the world. That if you start out automatically skeptical about things... That scepticism can never be satisfied, can never be answered, because you will be skeptical about the offered answer. (laughs) Uh, So you have to start out trusting and then work out when scepticism is appropriate because you have some reason to be skeptical. But you have every reason, as it were, to begin with trust because the alternative to beginning with trust is a scepticism that can never be resolved or defeated and you can't know hardly anything. So answering Morris's question, I think if we assume the priority of trust, if the satisfaction of our natural existential desires as many might think, requires there to be some kind of a God, then that intuition, that properly basic belief that life is not absurd, that it is worthwhile, places at least places the burden of proof on the nihilist. If the nihilist is the sceptic about value as much as about knowledge, and it is the rational thing to do, actually, to assume the meaningfulness, the valuableness of reality, and the burden of proof is on the nihilist to say, I know it seems to you intuitively like life is worthwhile, that it's really worthwhile, but actually it's not, and here's why. It's not our job to give arguments proving that life is valuable. That might be something you can do, but it's 
it's not really our position that we have to fulfill that demand. So recently I, I took part in a, a, de, a debate over various versions of the argument from desire that's going to be published in a book uh, about arguments that C.S. Lewis made um, where there are little um, miniature debates about those arguments for and against. It's going to be called something like C.S. Lewis's Apologetics for and Against, uh, edited by Gregory Basham. And indeed I, in that book, debate Gregory Basham over the argument from desire. Here's one way of of putting an argument from desire. Given that you've got a a sort of being, human beings for example, who possess existential desires of the type that we've been discussing that are natural to that kind of a being, their existence would be absurd, as we've said, to the extent that it is impossible for any member of that kind, for any human being, to ever satisfy those desires. If no human being could ever satisfy the desire for a life that really had purpose or meaning, uh, could ever satisfy the desire of the human heart for justice or forgiveness, then human existence would be, in the existentialist's term, Absurd. But two, humans are this kind of being with these kind of desires, and these desires are impossible to satisfy, one might very well think, unless God exists. As we saw yesterday, if there is no God, there are no objective moral values. If there is no creator, no purposer, of the existence of the universe and the universe and anything in it is not here for an objective given purpose if there is no God it seems quite unlikely that there's any afterlife worthy of the name certainly not one that brings any sense of cosmic justice to reality and so on Now it follows from those first two premises that therefore, unless God exists, human existence is absurd. Now in in arguing thus, we're in a sense simply agreeing with a lot of those atheists that we quoted earlier, saying if you grow up and you realise there's no God and you're going to be an atheist, you have to give up on thinking there's any meaning or value or purpose in life. You have to embrace nihilism. But of course, if we just simply add the premise that God does exist, we get to the conclusion that human existence isn't absurd. It's just to agree with the atheist, really, that, yes, the existence of God is a precondition of a meaningful human existence. To put it another way, and to go back to the book of Job quote from the book of Job 3.23 a rhetorical question in the Living Bible translation here. Why is a man allowed to be born if God is only going to give him a hopeless life of uselessness and frustration? And the implicit answer to this rhetorical question is of course well God wouldn't allow such an existential absurdity But if, secondly, God does exist, it will, of course, follow that we do not live 
existentially hopeless lives of uselessness that are doomed to frustration. Of course, our lives may, in the ultimate sense, be frustrated. There is, within the Christian view, the, the possibility of hell. But that is not a necessary outcome of the human condition. We are not doomed to frustration as we are within a materialistic, nihilistic worldview without God. And reality considered as a whole, only with God can it be considered objectively meaningful, purposeful, worthwhile, and so on. So we can put a reductio form of the argument from desire like this. Just swapping around, as you see the little arrows there, those bottom two premises. If we retain premises one to three, but then instead of saying, but God exists and therefore human life is not absurd, what if we say this? If we say four... Human life is not absurd. We just have this, as we've seen, deeply held rational intuition that life is worth it, that there is meaning and value, that, to use the extreme example we quoted several times yesterday, uh, the moral claim, torturing small children just for fun is wrong, is true, that that's a moral fact, and so on. So four, the existence of human beings is not absurd, from which it would then follow now that therefore God exists because God is a precondition of human life not being absurd. So now we've turned our argument here into an argument for God from these existential desires of the human heart put the argument another way you can argue like this you can point out that one nature makes no type or at least few types of human natural desires in vain certainly seems when we examine ourselves and we look at all sorts of natural desires that we have as human beings that it seems there are things in reality that answer and satisfy those desires for example I desire food Uh, there is food to eat now of course that doesn't mean I might not starve to death I have a desire for food that doesn't prove I'll get food I might starve to death but we're arguing here about types of desire and answer the fact that I have a desire for food certainly seems to indicate that I live in a world where I'm a being that needs food and there is food. I might not get it, but that does seem like an indication that that it's there to be had. It's at least a possibility that I could eat, (laughs) even if that possibility doesn't come to pass. So nature makes no type of natural human desire in vain, although specific examples of that desire might be frustrated it still goes to show that there is something in reality that answers that desire premise two 
humans have one or more natural existential desires that would be in vain unless, let's put it like this, at least some object that is never fully obtainable in our present mode of existence in this life, our present way of being in this space-time continuum, can be obtained in some future mode of existence. We're kind of talking about summing up these existential desires as the desire for what Christians conceive of as heaven. So it's an argument in this, this form not only for God, but for life with God in glory. Now from one and two, it follows that therefore the object of this otherwise vain desire can at least probably be obtained in some future mode of existence. Now, of course, if the the most plausible interpretation of what will satisfy our desires is, as I've said, basically God or relationship with God in glory, then it follows that God, at least probably, exists. So again, another way of putting an argument for God's existence from taking the desires of human nature seriously and not simply dismissing them on the basis that, oh, they don't fit with a materialistic worldview. The Apostle Paul, writing in Romans again, this is Romans 8, 18 to 23, says... I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God, for Christians, to be revealed in our fullness in the resurrection. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope, subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Peter Atkins and his thermodynamic chaos would resonate with this liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and is the redemption of our bodies as we are given the kind of resurrected existence that Jesus' resurrection is thus far our only sample of. I'd like to play to you, or depending upon your musical taste, perhaps inflict upon you, I apologise, a track uh, from one of my favourite bands. They're a prog rock group called Transatlantic. Um, They're a prog rock supergroup indeed, made up of uh, leading members of various other bands who occasionally come together uh, to make an album uh, together. 
Their 2010 album, uh, The Whirlwind, I think is their finest work to date. And the band leader is a guy called Neil Morse. Now, Neil Morse, who um, is one of the singers, main singer, and he plays the keyboards in the band, is a Christian singer-songwriter in America. Um, He became a Christian in the industry and um, then uh, left the band that he was in to go to a a solo career uh, and is uh, a prodigious uh, uh, writer and creator uh, who is in various bands, some of which are explicitly Christian uh, and some of which are not Christian bands, as it were. He's just a Christian member of it. Now, Transatlantic is one of those. It's not a Christian band. But it's clearly a band whose members are very interested in spiritual things, uh, who are friends with Neil Morse, who's uh, an outgoing, born-again Christian, and uh, who provided... uh, most of the lyrics, at least, uh, for this album, The Whirlwind. And one of the tracks that was a track that Neil himself wrote and and brought to uh, the process of putting this album together was a track called Rose-Coloured Glasses that I'd like to play to you. And it's, it's a track that he wrote about the then recent death of his father uh, and telling the story of his own father's uh, conversion to Christianity and his death and his feelings about his father's death uh, in the light of his own Christian worldview. So we have here, um, I'll show you uh, if the clip works, a a clip from a concert the Transatlantic gave where we have a a nominally secular non-Christian band playing to an audience that is by no means going to be full, full of Christians but giving a very explicit Christian message to them. And you see how it resonates with the audience as well by seeing seeing the clip rather than just listening to the track. Uh, The sense of inviting people into a religious experience through the music in a secular context I think is very interesting. Um, I'll show you the the track and... um, We'll listen to it, and I can, I can go over some of the, the lyrics, um, if you like, as we pick out. You'll probably notice, if you can follow them along, various biblical allusions as well. He talks about, um, now we see uh, through a glass, like Paul's, now we see in a glass darkly. Um, we see as in, as in a mirror, but then we'll see face to face. Those kind of Pauline themes are here uh, in this song, and it ends with the hope uh, of, of heaven of the city in the sky from Revelation 21 coming out of the sky to earth and so on um, so I, I apologise if you don't happen to share my musical taste but this is a, a good example of its genre and I think uh, uh, very affecting in its lyrics and when you know the background that it's, you know, it's written from the heart by a guy whose uh, father has just died and the band uh, agreed to, to play this track on their album Let's see if the technology works. Hmm. I think it's just incredible to, to see how that artistic expression of the hope of heaven is greeted by a mainly secular audience at, at the end of that song. And the way in which art can give people an experience of what it is to live within a Christian worldview that they may not themselves share. 
me go through uh, the lyrics for you, just in case you couldn't pick them out particularly. It says, long ago, he saw the light of day, that is his father, he saw the light of day, he became a Christian. And then the wind blew the man away. And I don't believe I wear rose-coloured glasses, but I believe the man is going home. Long ago, he set the ship aright, and then he sailed away into the night. And I don't believe I wear rose-coloured glasses, but I believe the man is going home. And I know that we are more than just dust and ashes, and one day we'll know what we've known. But on the dark side, there are times of suffering. And I don't believe I wear rose-coloured glasses, but as the pages turn, one day we'll learn of everything. But now we see through glass. Reference to St Paul. When the end came, I said goodbye, and I hoped to meet him on the other side. And I don't believe I wear rose-coloured glasses but I believe we have the greatest hope. And I'll sing this as we're scattering the ashes. I believe the man has gone back home. But on the dark side, there are times of suffering. And I don't believe I wear rose-colored glasses, but as the pages turn, one day we'll learn of everything. But now we see through glass. This world is not our home. You can live like a rolling stone, but you cannot escape with your life. We seek a city on fire with the heart of a child's desire. And we will cross that bridge and enter into life. Real life. And then uh, the fantastic guitar solo by the Swedish guitarist, Reinhard Stolt. But on the dark side, there are times of suffering. But on the As the pages turn, one day we'll learn of everything. But through the dark years, there are tears and suffering. But as the pages turn, one day we'll burn like lightning in that city in the sky. Revelation 21. So with that uh, hope of heaven in our hearts, uh, do feel free to carry on conversing, but, uh, but I note that we've come to the end of the, the session time, uh, and lunch is beginning to be available, so do feel free uh, to go off uh, to lunch uh, with the hope of heaven in your hearts. Thank you.